Mike Schur is with us, and this is the deal around here. I don't want to overcomplicate things, but basically, we want to introduce you over a course of, I don't know how many weeks and months, to some of the people who have most supported us in a way that feels good. You know some of them. You've seen them hiding in the shadows. They've been hugely supportive of what we do, and they continue to be. One of those people is Mike Schur. We got to know him because he wrote the loveliest of articles. It's a weird story, really, because Mike Schur, who is very busy, who was one of the guys in the Saturday Night Live writer's room, a guy who in the 2000s was at the epicenter of where great comedy was being made in America and then parlays that into being a writer for The Office, a generational comedy, and then creating Parks and Rec, another generational comedy, and now doing shows where he's allowed to have full bursts of creative freedom in his 40s in a way that is substantive and just doing good, smart work, fun work with people he loves, which is the same thing that we do, which is probably why he gravitated toward us in the first place, to waste his time writing a Slate article about a radio show in whatever it was, 2018, 2019. And through all of that, seeing how some of the spirit of what Mike Schur wrote about us on Slate was slowly sort of soul-sucked over the last couple of years, Mike Schur was among the many who came to our rushing support and defense out of love, friendship, kinship for the arts. Anyways, all of which is a flowery way of saying thank you, Mike Schur, for everything it is that you have helped us with in terms of support over the last couple of years, and welcome to helping the Empire move forward in whatever role it is that you are now assuming with the Empire, where you are lending your talents and your support in a way that's public that allows us to introduce you to the audience through South Beach Sessions as another one of the Levitard and friends who is just helping us build this thing out. We are honored and flattered to have your treasure chest of gifts anywhere near what it is that we do around here. Thank you. Uh, are we done? Is that it? Should are we I just good? let you go? I should just let you go in terms of an <laughs> announcement. See you later, Mike Schur. Ladies South and gentlemen. South Beach Sessions is brought to you by DraftKings. Mike Schur is a part of Levitard and Friends. There's the announcement, everybody. Uh, but welcome to the inner circle, Mike Schur. You came from the outside. You, I mean, it was weird, Mike. The fact that you, you wrote that we were the best show in America. You, you're knighting our show. You, the specific comedy maker through Mike, you book us as a guest. You sleep in the Clevelander. You spend days around here in the stink, the stench, the foul of the Clevelander, Mike. Yeah, like yeah. The Clevelander is where you decided to stay in a spring break hotel. That's when we should have known that his judgment was already like, flawed. What's wrong with this person? <laughs> what is he like? Why does he like this? And so I wanted to go through your history, though, because, Mike, do you know the spirit of everything we do around here sort of starts- I have a pretty good idea, Dan. With FireJoeMorgan.com. Oh, yes. Yeah, I absolutely know that. And now the story can be told. ESPN had a policy where I couldn't spend alone time with Mike Schur when he was doing that profile. So we couldn't. No. Is that true? Yeah, because I wasn't under a talent contract. So they would let you speak alone to Dan and Stu Gotts, but he just wanted to meet me and hang out for a little bit. So we met at a local establishment and then I took him to a concert. Yeah, that's true. So the night before I came into the studio, Mike texted me and we went out and we had a we had a drink at a restaurant. He showed me around Miami. We walked to a weird venue and then we went to he was like, there's a concert. Uh, this band is playing at this uh, venue. And uh, do you want to go? And I said, sure, sounds good. And we went and it was like, a it, what, what, what name the venue for the people in Miami who know these things. The uh, famed Jackie Gleason Theater, the Fillmore in Miami Beach. What an amateur you are, sure, with your all your Hollywood elitism. What do you mean? The famed Jackie <laughs> Fillmore. What do you mean? Jackie I, Fillmore. I, okay. Jackie Gleason. Uh, okay. Stop yelling at me. So we go to this concert and it's like ambient house music. So it's like, it was like 4,000 people in what seemed to be like an 11,000 seat arena, listening to like the kind of music that's playing in the background when you are on hold. That's how I think of it. And then, and we sort of sat there for a while and it was very clear uh, after about 30 minutes that I was 43 and Mike was 33 and his evening was just beginning and mine was very over. And so I went back to the Clevelander and I made the only good decision I made that whole weekend was as I was walking back to the Clevelander, I thought, I bet I need earplugs. And I saw a CVS and I went in and I bought earplugs and thank God, because I don't think I would have slept the entire night. I mean, there was a party going on 
everywhere around me. There were different parties going on everywhere around me. And I didn't sleep very well, even with the earplugs. Like I think at, at like, I'm going to say one thirty or two, I think I dropped off and I had to get up at seven to come meet you. Uh, what a nightmare that place is. It is a, it is a, a very specific kind of nightmare. <laughs> All right. Yes. Pitbull played for 24 hours too loudly. Right. I was under actually your, downstairs. Right under your chin. And Mike was down there <laughs> dancing and it was the actual Pitbull. It wasn't even a video. It's just what was happening down there. Yeah. The yeah. smell of and cologne then, would have kept you up that night alone. It was though, like, I, you know, when I wanted to write that piece, it was out of pure fandom. It was like a, I had found your show and I'd been listening to it obsessively for probably a year, a year plus. And this doesn't happen to me very often, but I had this thought that was like, I think I need to write something about this. Like I just, it was like, you guys are in my brain all the time. And I, I just had this feeling. And so I knew some of the guys at Slate and I had written a thing on Mike Trout for them maybe a year or two earlier and I emailed them and just said, like, do you, would you have any interest? The way I put it was, would you have any interest in a way too long piece about Dan Levitard and his radio program? And then we talked about it. And he said, why does it have to be way too long? And I was like, because I, I think that in order to kind of capture the thing that I sense from these guys and ladies, it just it can't be like a, a cute, you know, 1500 word piece. It's got to be really sort of thorough. Like, I think I have to go there and I have to sort of like experience it and try to get inside it to sort of figure out what the hell it is. And so, you know, this is the good thing about the internet, right? Is like, there's no, there's, it's not actual tangible pages in a magazine. It was like, yeah, we've, we're a website. You can write it as long as you want. So then I decided, well, I need the whole experience. And, and I need to, and that means like staying at the Clevelander. So I booked a room at the Clevelander and when, and when I was checking in, they offered me a frozen daiquiri, which was exactly what I wanted. I was absolutely, I was checking in behind a bachelorette party and they all took the frozen daiquiris. I declined. And then Mike led me on a tour of uh, Mike Ryan's Miami, including an ambient house music concert that like started at 11 and I couldn't sleep. And then I woke up and hung out. And then I remember you being kind of suspicious of me. You were kind of eyeing me. I was tucked away in the corner and you kept referring to me as this writer. You're like, who's this writer who's back there? Just <laughs> and a creator I just, of Parks and Rec, Dan. Yeah, <laughs> just the creator of Parks and Rec. Well, I didn't, yes, I did not know who it is that you were by face. And I did not know who it is that you were because at the time I did not know your name. And so I did not know that we were in the presence of royalty. And I didn't oh, also God. know, well, no, seriously, but I also didn't know that we were not only in the presence of sort of comedy writing royalty, for which you would assume I'd have some appreciation given what it is that we do for a living. This was a dude who was a kindred spirit who came down here and was fascinated by all our garbage, at least in part because in some small way, it must have reminded him of the things that he was making in the office and Parks and Rec. This group of weirdos interacting with each other in a soulful way where the artists have the roles that they're playing. I've got to imagine when my mentor, Mike, my mentor, who is part of this thing that we're building, Gary Honig, when he read your piece and saw the tattered state that I was in at the end of working at our tenure, because I was just sort of broken by the last year in America, he read your piece and he actually wept because he knew how much I was under where I wasn't doing the job the way that I wanted to be doing it. And you captured in that article how much I value sort of the freedom and the family of this dysfunctional family. You came down here and made a sincere effort to get at the soul of the thing. And you did. That's the that's the greatest compliment I could pay to a writer that that you worked hard that you even gave us unbelievably flattering that you would even give us that kind of time and attention, but that you would need to do it is part of why I'm so excited about venturing forward the next few years with whatever it is, this thing that we're going to build together. is. Well, I had, a, I had a theory, I suppose if I were a really good journalist, instead of a, a, like a cosplaying journalist, I, I wouldn't have formulated a theory before I got down there. But um, I did have a theory and, and the theory was essentially that, Having listened to the show for a while and sort of beginning to, I think, understand it, understand the the gears and how they meshed, my theory was that that this is the product of a group of people who have been left completely alone. 
that it was like a group of people who were out, who were existed outside of any kind of instruction or system that was telling them what to do. You guys were like a, like a, you were, the, the Clevelander is a Petri dish, literal Petri dish, but also metaphorical Petri dish, because I think that you were just some, some like organisms that got dropped into this Petri dish and then the scientist went away and it had just grown so organically and my theory was that it was the result of a of a small group of people who were so comfortable and so kind of um i don't know even know what the word is like uh like relaxed maybe that you had been able to just create something organic without worrying that anyone you were doing it really for yourselves and it happened to matter to other people and there's a there's like a a thing that i've experienced in my life in a bunch of different writers rooms where People can't do good work, at least in the world of comedy, unless they feel very safe and sort of almost unexamined. You have to feel a sense of like the, the kind of confidence and, and relaxation that comes from just being wholly yourself, good or bad, for better or worse. That's the only way that people can actually be funny, can make good anything. And I, the reason that I discovered this was when I started at SNL, I was 20. 22. I just turned 22. And I was so anxious and nervous all the time. I think I told Mike this story when I, when we were having a secret non ESPN approved I don't, drinks. Can someone explain before. to me how, why was that so entangled? Why did that have to be so complicated? Why can't you guys just go <laughs> have drinks? Yeah. They, they, they just advise against it because if the talent contract allows me to speak freely as opposed to not being under a talent contract where I could just say anything. <laughs> I don't understand. I you really had to you had to throw up the food chain whether you can have lunch or have a was, drink with was, Mike Sure. It was covert. And they probably would have told me it was a bad idea to take him to an ambient house show and they probably would have been right. <laughs> well, yeah, that I would have agreed with them on. Um, but anyway, when I first got to SNL, I was miserable. I, I was completely out of my depth. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I was full of anxiety and fear. I went to work every week, totally freaked out. And as a result, and this is not false modesty, I, I didn't write anything good or funny for a, like a full year. I'm not kidding. Like a full year went by before I wrote a single piece of comedy that was any good at all. And at the time I started going to therapy and I was in therapy for like the seventh time. And I was talking about, I think I was talking about the job and I left and I went to work because I did therapy before work and I was walking to work and I had this moment. I was crossing 50th street between sixth and seventh Avenue. And I was like, oh my God, I'm miserable. I hate my job. Like it, it poured out of my brain in an instant. And it was a thought that had never occurred to me for the simple reason that I was 22 or 23 and working at Saturday Night Live, it just felt, well, that's impossible. I can't, I have to like my job. Like if I, how could I not like my job? It's an incredible job for a 23 year old to have. And as soon as I admitted to myself that I was miserable, I got so much better. I started relaxing. I didn't press. Adam McKay was the head writer at the time. And part of what was making me miserable is I was, I was measuring myself against Adam McKay, which is essentially in the world of comedy, it's essentially like starting to take piano lessons and comparing yourself to Mozart. Like it's a very bad idea to measure yourself against Adam McKay. And so I was constantly filled with this dread of like, I, I can't, I can't bright like him. I can't be like him. I can't measure up to him. But as soon as I just admitted that I was unhappy, I got so much happier. And as soon as I was happier and more relaxed, I started writing better stuff. And over the course of my entire life and career in comedy, it has really stuck with me as a lesson, which is you can't do anything good unless you're just relaxed and, and you feel safe and you feel confident and comfortable. And so when I listened to your show, what I, what I heard was a bunch of people who had the confidence and the the comfortability and the relaxation of a group of people who know they're just, they can do whatever they want. And it just felt like this incredibly natural and fun and organic thing that you guys were doing every week. You would do entire shows where you didn't talk about anything that was happening in the world. You only talked about yourselves and what had happened in your world. And it blew my mind that you could have a talk radio show about sports on ESPN and have the confidence not to ever talk about sports in any meaningful way and still be entertaining. That was just a really sort of weirdly inspiring thing. And so my theory going down there was 
these guys have have figured out whether intentionally or accidentally that thing that it took me a really long time to figure out, which is that in order to do good work, you have to be, you have to feel safe and you have to be, you guys are in this little womb. You told me a really interesting story, both of you did, which is that in that sequence of time when you moved studios, you moved to the bigger studio at the Clevelander and everything went haywire and you hated it. And the shipping container was on a monitor that was being beamed in like Star Trek style to the where Dan and Stu were sitting and everybody was sort of spread apart and like everybody was miserable and, it, and the show didn't work and it was awful and you voluntarily moved yourselves back into the closet where you do the show where you're sitting right now and suddenly everything clicked again and it was like there's a you guys have a womb there it's a womb it's a tiny cramped awful space where everybody's on top of each other and the stuff under Billy's desk you can smell from from the, from my, where Mike sits and it's awful but it's also yours and then the pressure is kept really the more pressure there is the more likely the lump of coal is to become a diamond right so everything that you told me even though you weren't meaning you weren't like you hadn't heard my theory but everything you told me sort of um made me feel like my theory was correct and so that was that was the genesis of wanting to write about you and that was the confirmation of what i believe to be true about the show after just listening to it as a fan yeah, that was all confirmation bias. He came like the fake journalist that he is down here with his idea of what he was going to write and then found the details that supported his premise, had the story written before he even right. landed here, just slept at the Clevelanders so he could have the story of being a hot shot partying with Mike Ryan on South <laughs> Beach against all Disney rules because you're supposed to get sign off on that when you do it. What Mike has been invaluable about, Mike sure, not Mike Ryan, Mike Ryan has serial bad judgment that ends up with him and house music with a very important Hollywood industry insider that didn't need to be out that late. He was sending videos to his wife like, can you believe I'm here? <laughs> well, it was very, for a Ford, married 43-year-old, two kids. It was the most exciting thing that's happened to me in 10 years. Well, can I talk about, I just, there's so much I want to cover with Mike because he's legitimately become our friend over the last couple of years. And I can't explain to the audience how legitimately supportive he has been with just very wise advice about show business because he just knows these little things that are important to know, which is that this closet matters in doing it in this closet. And you told me a story about Conan O'Brien that I thought was really wonderful. I hope I'm not betraying any confidences here, but I want the audience to know that there are a thousand examples you've helped me with here where you're giving me some bit of advice that perhaps I hadn't considered about our own show and the environment. And we need to stay something in these later years that is fighting against something. We don't want to become a show that's all of a sudden renegade free, big shot bullies. We need to somehow maintain the authenticity of, no, nah, we're a show from a closet. Yeah. I mean, the story I told you was when Conan took over the Tonight Show, Conan and Greg Daniels, who who adapted The Office and, and created Parks and Rec with me and is my mentor, Conan and Greg were writing partners at SNL a million years ago and, and are very good friends. And Greg and I were uh, on the Universal lot. We were about to mix, sound mix the pilot of Parks and Rec. And they had just built for Conan a $20 million studio on the lot, this enormous building so that he could do The Tonight Show. He could move from his tiny cramped studio where he did his, his 1230 show into this like giant cathedral. And we ran into him on the lot and he said like, hey, do you want to see the studio? And and we said yes. And he walked us in and it was enormous. It was huge and beautiful. It had a sort of California art deco design. And the, there was a, the, the main stage area was gorgeous. And there, were, there was this incredible like detail work and the rafters. And, and there were these enormous elephant doors in the back. And the idea was that he could, you know, drive a semi trailer in to do a bit or whatever. And it was really stunning. It's a very stunning studio space. And I was sort of saying like, God, oh, this is incredible. Like this is, uh, you know, place is amazing. And he was like, yeah, I wonder if it's, uh, I can't help but wonder if it's too, too kind of grand. And I was like, what makes you say that? And he said, well, you know, we used to do this show in a, in a you know, 150 seat theater in New York, this tiny little cramped black box studio, essentially. And now we're here and, you know, this is great. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm still making light banter with Terry Hatcher. 
And, and I said, well, you know, but yeah, but like you're doing something different now. It's a, you're, you're, it's a different show. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's a different show. It's a different show. And, and, you know, it's a beautiful theater, but he never, to my eye, and I don't know him that well, but he never, to me, looked as happy and comfortable in that giant theater as he did in the small one. And he, his method of his, his genius, his particular genius was experimentation. Like he, he is in the Letterman mold where he, his goal wasn't to just do a late night show, it was to do his late night show and to deconstruct the idea of a late night show. I mean, they, Jay Leno used to do that bit of um, headlines where he would just like find funny headlines from real newspapers. People would send them in and he would essentially just read them. It would be like um, Bill Dick married Janet Robot. It's the Dick Robot wedding. And that was it, right? It was like, that was the whole joke was just that sometimes in real life, funny things happen. Conan did that bit, but he did a parody of it where he had his writers who were incredible. That The writing staff of Conan's 1230 show is a legendary writing staff. Like every single person on that writing staff was incredibly great and funny. And so he did the same bit, but he just had his writers write things and he would read them and they were hilarious. And then he would go like, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You can't write this. This is crazy. Can you believe this? You can't make this stuff up. And so that was his thing was like, we're the cool underground indie rock CBGB late night show. We're not the big mass appeal late night show. And when he took that into this giant LA theater and tried to adapt it, he and nobody in the world works harder than that guy. He is one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my life. And he was aware of all of the potential traps and pitfalls. And he tried his hardest to adapt what he did for a different audience in a different time slot but he just never seemed like he was as happy as he was when he was doing his weird experimental stuff with nobody watching in the middle of the night. And so I told you that story because I feel like you are all in that same, in a similar conundrum, right? You have this thing that has been, that has been developed in a closet in Miami for 15 years. And, and now whenever, when you transition into something else, the, the trick is like, how do you keep that same energy, that same spirit, that same kind of, closeness, that same kind of experimental feeling, but also change it and try to welcome new people into the tent. It's not easy. It's a very difficult thing to do. And I think that anything that draws you too far away from what you have been doing is going to be a hard thing to navigate for you. Except for the fact that we have the actual and real tether that has no fraudulence in it of no matter what, Stugatz is lying, no matter what, Stugatz is sleazy, no matter what, Stugatz is actually Stugatz. So no matter where we put it, and we will take that all under advisement, sure. But what I love about everything that you're saying there is that Conan O'Brien is, in my mind, a genius. I love, oh, the, God. Uh, but yeah. I love the evolution of Conan O'Brien, even going falling down sideways in front of the corporation where I don't even know what happened to him creatively, but it feels like he just got locked up somewhere and now it feels like at this age that he's back to being happy just making the stuff that he wants and yeah. what a joy of freedom that must be i don't even know how many times you've gotten trapped with all of the freedom in the world in making something by accident that you didn't want to because you just whatever it got away from you conan o'brien seems really legitimately free right now yeah i think he is and i don't know i, I again i don't know him that well i don't want to speak for him at all um i do know that he is like if you made a if you made a Mount Rushmore, my personal Mount Rushmore of like comedy Hall of Famers in my lifetime, he's on it. He's one of the people I revere the most in terms of his sensibility, his sense of humor, his ability to make something out of nothing. Like I and I think that he is a perfect example of a guy who needs. I think he works better as many people do when there are obstacles. Like obstacles are good for comedy. Like that the problem in my mind with some of the ways that comedy has drifted in the last like 20 years are the new world of entertainment of streaming services. And, um, you know, your episodes, when you make a comedy show can be as long as you want. They don't have commercials anymore. You can curse, you can show nudity, whatever, like that gets into a, there's this like kind of drift that happens where with no obstacles, people stop being critical of what they're doing and everything gets kind of flabby and, Conan was was the master of taking the obstacles that he was handed a tiny studio, no budget, 1230 in the morning, 
and, and making something really funny every night in a like, you know, late night shows are like tissue. It's like just you just make them one after another. They're just it's just just utterly disposable. And yet he sunk his entire heart and soul every single night into trying to do something really funny. That's an incredibly uh, admirable quality. I should note, by the way, when you mentioned Stu Gatz, that the the way that my weekend ended when I came down there was, uh, you know, I, I talked to you for a while. I talked to Stu Gatz for a while. I apparently wasn't allowed to talk to anyone else individually, uh, but I talked to the entire shipping container. I talked to Amin. I talked to Mina Kimes. I talked to a, a whole lot of people, Sarah Spain, a whole bunch of people who are in your orbit. And the way that the entire experience ended was that Stu Gatz called me on the phone and asked me to ghostwrite his book. Uh, he asked me to ghost write my own personal record book. And I told him that I loved him and, and, and thought it was a great idea and that I would be happy to oh, try no. to contribute in some way, but that I, I didn't really have the time to write an entire book for him. And he was like, I totally understand. And I've never talked to him since. Yeah. He's never called That's me so or touched me. Or- now you're in business with him. Now, now we're all, now we are all together in business and that will be what sinks the ship. I don't know what's more surprising to you that you arrived here in this hotel where we're over a bar that Disney would put this thing here, Disney. What's more surprising to you that Disney would put this thing here or that we would be allowed for even 10 minutes to exist inside of the Disney machine for the reasons you articulated. We were just on the outskirts thrown there by the guy who's now our CEO of this company. And we were just allowed to do our own thing. That was the job he gave me. That was the beauty of the job, the beauty of the freedom birth you coming into our lives because you seem to recognize all of that. I already forgot your question. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the answer to to why it happened is essentially somebody just did it. John Skipper just kind of did it. And then you started making them money. And in general, it's not fundamentally different from like the American revolution or something. It's like England put a bunch of people over here. And as long as they were making England money, England left them alone. And then the society kind of grew and changed and started grappling with its own problems and founding its own states and had its own issues, um, some of which we're still we're still grappling with today. But suddenly England woke up and was like, wait, what's happening over there? What what are those guys doing? And that's when the war started, right? And I think that you were just put there by someone who believed in you and you were allowed to grow and change and develop by yourselves. And as long as you were making money for Disney for ESPN, they didn't really care because who cares? It's like, a, it, you know, unless you, you, when you cause problems, when you take out a billboard thanking LeBron James or actually saying you're welcome to LeBron James or when you give away your Hall of Fame vote or whatever, then some, suddenly somebody in Bristol wakes up and goes like, wait, what is, what is that guy doing? Uh, suspend him for a day. But generally speaking, they don't care what, it's a, such a massive company. They don't care what people are doing as long as the money keeps rolling in. And then eventually, after a dozen years or whatever it was, the situation becomes untenable for one reason or another or for 50 reasons or 50 others. And that's when things kind of fall apart. But it doesn't actually surprise me that much that you were allowed to do it because all it takes for something like this to happen is for one powerful person who has the ability to make it happen to give it a shot. There are few people in the world, there are a few kind of corporate executives in the world who would take that chance. That's certainly true. but but when you have a guy like John Skipper who's who believe who just believes in people and wants to empower them and let them do their thing things like your show can evolve because it just takes that initial decision and unless it unless something goes completely haywire it's just going to be a one tiny it's a you know the the budget for your show is a rounding error in the annual ESPN Disney budget so what do they care they look at numbers on a spreadsheet they say we costs x and it makes y so yeah let it keep going so that doesn't really surprise me. It, it maybe surprises me that it took as long as it did to go haywire and to get to the point where it felt untenable for one party or the other. But again, I think, as you've pointed out many times on the show, I don't think they were listening to your show at all. I don't think they knew what you were doing. And so it, so it just sort of got, you got to do it for 10 years. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's such a simple thing that he's articulating there, and he's seeing it all from his perspective because I don't believe he and I have talked about any of this stuff, and I don't believe that he knows in any meaningful way what John Skipper did for us. But basically, so that the audience understands and so that Mike Schur understands, because Mike Schur has just rushed to our support, not I won't say blindly, but he just wants to be around what we're doing because we want him to be around what we're doing because it helps us, it sturdies us, and we can use the support right now. But John Skipper is somebody who very much loves being around creatives, loves supporting creatives, loves the arts, loves writing, but is not someone who he himself is creative. He's a business assassin. He's very good at supporting creatives. And one of the things that he was doing at Disney, and I haven't talked to John about this either, but he was making so much money for Disney, more than anyone had ever made, that he just sort of wanted to create a couple of things with that money because he comes from Rolling Stone. He just wanted to spill a couple of things here and there and see if it would birth anything because he'd like to support creatives. And so he gave us this thing in the corner that, yes, we were a rounding error, Mike. We started making money, but it's just a few million dollars thrown in a corner for Disney. Let's see if it becomes anything. That's the spirit of the partnership that you have just entered now, and that's the spirit of the partnership that I have with John Skipper. Now let's just have fun doing this. This should be fun. Why would this not be fun? It's the playground everybody wants in creativity. Yeah, that was one of the things that you said when I was interviewing you that really kind of struck a chord was you had a genuine and obviously genuine disbelief that more people weren't trying to do the kinds of things that you guys were doing. In other words, this is a gigantic corporation that makes billions of dollars a year. We're talking about sports, which is fundamentally a trivial, unimportant thing. Why aren't more people taking more chances with rounding error level budget numbers, right? Like, how is it that we are the only people who want to try to have any fun at this company? And I, I think that when you're when you're running a gigantic company like ESPN, I would imagine, I don't know, but I would imagine that there's a tremendous amount of pressure to not roll the dice in that way. Because generally speaking, if you take a chance on something that is outside of the general purview of the kinds of things that your company does, and it doesn't work out, you feel like you're exposed. You get blamed for it. You know, it's it's easy when it works to take credit for it. It's hard when it doesn't work to defend, yeah, we lost $11 million paying this person to do this weird thing. You know, every other time ESPN has tried to do anything like create your little ecosystem, generally speaking, it's failed. Like that, the the football show they did when when the NFL got furious at them and sued them and and they had to get rid of it. You know, those those sorts of extracurricular activities or those attempts to branch out, generally speaking, didn't work out for them for one reason or another. So I remember hearing a story about Steve Ballmer, LA Clippers owner, Steve Ballmer, uh, where he, over the course of like 10 years, he killed a ton of projects that would have put them ahead of Apple. They were developing a tablet and he was like, no, kill it. And, it was, and then they were developing a phone and he killed it. And, they, and so like, you know, people would develop these new technologies and they would get pretty far up the chain and then they would be presented to him and he would kill them. And the reason that he would kill them is because Microsoft had this insane institutional money-making machine of like all of their software, Microsoft Word and Office and Excel and whatever else they had. Just every year, it was like a guarantee. We are going to make... $27.8 billion without doing anything. We don't have to do anything. We're just going to make that much money. And so when it came to like, there's this new technology that we could go after, but it's going to cost, you know, a billion dollars in R&D, he would think like, well, why, why would we do that? Why would I throw a billion dollars away on something? And as a result, Apple ate their lunch on the iPhone and the iPad and all this other stuff and the, and the iPod. Like and when you go back, you can look at quotes that he has of like, when the iPhone came out, he was like, no one's ever going to pay $500 for a phone. When the iPod came out, he was like, who wants this? This is ridiculous. Like he just, there's, there's a kind of groupthink, or I don't know what you call it, a kind of like hesitance to take risks when you're running these companies, because if you do nothing, you make a ton of money. And if you do something, you might lose some. And so that spirit is what kills the kind of fun and ingenuity and experimentation that you personally desire so desperately 
And it's what is can be so frustrating about working in a system like that. I happen to work for a giant company whose entire purpose is to take risks and to experiment and is constantly losing money because they make a ton of pilots and they do it. They buy a ton of ideas for shows and movies and they, they don't know it, it's, it's ingrained into the system of a, of like a studio that they have to try this stuff. They have, they, you never know how you're going to get to the Sopranos or Mad Men or, or whatever, like the, an idea for a show can seem absurd and then it can become the biggest thing in the world very quickly so I don't, I don't work for the, a similar kind of company. I work for a company that, that values experimentation, but that's a rare kind of company. And most of them are just looking at our, our, our sort of bean counting. And that is why I think you guys have hit that wall where you were an accident. You were a little organism dropped into a Petri dish that was allowed to grow and flourish. And then when you tried to recreate that and say like, hey, let's get more Petri dishes in here and drop more organisms into them, and see what else grows out of the darkness, um, everybody was hesitant because it seemed more like you were the exception to the rule instead of the rule. And so now you got only yourselves. Now you got it. You can as many Petri dishes as Dan's checking account can fund. You can, you can lay them all out on the table and see what happens. That's a really exciting place to be. It's also, it's also very scary and it feels very dangerous and, and, um, and worrisome at times, I'm sure, especially for Dan. But it's very exciting. It feels like you're going to make a bunch of stuff that fails and you're going to make some stuff that succeeds. And the process of trying is what is exciting and, and what should be making everybody feel that sense of like uh, experimentational, crackly excitement. How unimpressive do you, as somebody who is one of the famed, if not uh, the most popular going right now, showrunner that there is anywhere in Hollywood. Will you stop saying, this is so Im utterly embarrassing that you keep doing this. I'm a TV showrunner that just call me a TV showrunner. Don't just don't talk about the, the legend and the fame. Okay, and the you're glory. not a legend. You're not. You're, a, you're, you're, not. you're exaggerating terribly. Well, you, you wrote the show that is the number one stream show right now. And it ended several years ago in the office. If, if not a Hollywood juggernaut, what are you? Honestly, like, what's embarrassing about it's, what we're saying? At this saying point, here? it's false modesty. I mean, you know who is. you are. I mean, right? what kind of asshole are you? Seriously, like, do you not know who you are? Because I didn't know who you are, and that seemed to hurt your feelings. Stu got certainly didn't no, know who you were. Hurt, and no, that seemed no, to hurt you, your feelings. you totally misread that. It did not hurt my feelings at all. It, it made me happy. I was happy that you didn't have any idea who I was because otherwise, because I, if if you had any inkling at all of anything I had ever done, you might have acted differently. It would have been an, a Heisenberg problem. I would have affected the experiment by observing the experiment. Like I didn't want, I didn't, I wasn't in any way offended. I still wouldn't be offended, frankly. Why should any of you care or know anything that I've done? I was very happy that everyone, I, no one I talked why to, by the way. Why should we know, not, Mike? Because the things that you have done, what do you mean, why should we know? Because I mean, if you're you've done, speaking from a point where you didn't know, though. If, but if you, the office in Parks and Rec, why should, I wouldn't know you by I had face, to sell though. Mike's shirt. He I did. had to, hey, I think this guy, I think this would be good for us. And now look where we are. TV yeah, executives, wildly unimpressive. You'd agree? Uh... Well, I no, I would not agree. Uh, I some of some. Do you know Sturgeon's Law? You guys should know about Sturgeon's Law. I You've think mentioned in, it before. In, yes, Sturgeon's Law. There's a, a science fiction writer whose last name was Sturgeon, and he got sick of defending science fiction as a genre. And one day, so he was being interviewed, and the guy said, "Wouldn't you? But wouldn't you agree that ninety percent of all science fiction is crap?" And his response was, 90 percent of everything is crap." And it's such a great thing to remember. Like when people are like, why is all TV bad or whatever? It's like, because all of, most of everything is bad. Most movies are bad. Most restaurants are bad. You know, most opera is bad. So when you say like TV executives are, are unimpressive as a group, I don't think they're more unimpressive as a group than any other group of people, including showrunners and comedy writers and anything else. There are, like anything else, there are very good TV executives, very smart TV executives. There are some that are kind of mediocre and there are some that are kind of bad. But the good ones are the ones who, who just really care about what they're doing. They really, it, it seems facile to say this, but the good ones are the ones that just care about TV. They just like TV. You know, the guy who is almost single-handedly responsible on the corporate side for The Office is a guy named Kevin Riley, who at the time was running NBC, later ran Fox for 10 years. Um, he basically 
wagered his career on The Office. Like The Office did six episodes its first season. Nobody liked it. If you go back and read the reviews of it, everyone thought it sucked and wasn't as good as the British show and was boring and weird and and they hated it. And he basically, to get it picked up for a second season, even though he was the president of NBC, he had to argue uh, so vehemently that he essentially wagered his career on the idea that Greg and the writing staff and the actors could could make it work. That's a very rare thing for anyone to do in any scenario, but he did it and he was right. And there, when the show won an Emmy for best comedy in season two, and we demanded that Kevin come with us onto the stage. And um, and then in, there's a photo of us backstage holding Emmys and we're holding Kevin uh, lying down across us as we hold him up because he was the guy. Like, you know, Greg is the genius behind the show. Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant in the British show and Greg in the American show. And of course, the show doesn't work without Steve Carell and it doesn't work without Jenna Fisher and John Krasinski and everybody else uh, and Rain Wilson and the entire cast. But how did this but, become an acceptance speech? Like, yes, you give credit to everyone. Yes, every everyone, just a couple minutes ago, you were false modest. Yeah, all of a sudden, then he's given. I didn't mention myself. Not, not only I'm is, saying that. Wait a minute. Not only is he false modest, he's giving the Emmy speech now that he's never actually been able to give because all his shows are critically acclaimed, but they never win shit. Like everyone, everyone thinks that Mike Shirt. Like, how could he be that big of a Hollywood showrunner if he never wins shit, Mike? If he, yeah, if there he's, you go. Even on a Zoom. In fact, you know what does Shit's Creek one. Shit, Shit's Creek won ate everybody's lunch last year. But the point is, is that Kevin was that guy. He is a TV executive, and he is anything but unimpressive. He's a very impressive executive. He has incredible. He has incredible taste. And there's a lot of people like that. The women I work for at Universal now are like that. Like they're good. They're very good at what they do. They're very smart. And I think that TV executives get a bad rap in the same way that a lot of sort of they get lumped in with a lot of like corporate executives in a way that I don't think is fair. Maybe it's just been my experience. Uh, Mike Ryan, tell me the story that you were just telling me in my ear because Mike sure has indeed. It's not fair. He has won an award, but to tell you what a dork Mike Schur is, and he's the biggest kind of dork, explain to people what he did the night to celebrate his big award that we all got to be a part of weirdly somehow, but the highlight of his night was talking to whom? Well, not all of us, because I was at a warehouse rave in New York City, but he decided <laughs> to celebrate his Peabody Award for the good place by going to a hotel lobby and chatting with Billy. Yeah. Fresh off the That's award. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Greg Cody. I met Greg Cody that night. That was very exciting. You were so fanboy. It was strange to see, Mike. I don't even understand what was happening that night. You're coming back from winning a Peabody for the good place. Again, a pretty good show. Critically acclaimed in every way. A smart show. And the highlight of your night was getting to spend time. Am I am I speaking for you or is it true? The, what no, you that's true. This what, is all true. What you remember about that night was you got to hang out with Cody and Billy. Yes, that's right. Cody and Billy and Greg Cody. And I spent most of the night pumping them up and, and making them feel more confident about the live show you were doing in New York because they were very nervous that it wasn't going to go. Well, Billy was nervous that it wasn't going to go well. Chris and Greg... Well, Greg didn't care. Right. Greg was, it was unclear whether Greg was even a part of it. Yeah. Chris was very confident. He was like, it's going to be great. Stu got to walk out. The crowd will go crazy. Everything will be fine. But Billy was very nervous. You were kind of nervous. You were a little, as I remember, you were yes. sort of like, oh, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Everyone was a little bit nervous. And so I spent most of that night just saying like, it's going to be awesome. You guys are going to be great. The fans are going to love it. That's how I spent my evening while Mike was at a warehouse rave in Brooklyn. Yeah, self-medicating, <laughs> probably. I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. When you say Conan O'Brien is on that Mount Rushmore list that you're putting together there, I was curious, who else are you putting on it? He's on there in part because he's so formative for me. Like, you know, he he was doing his thing at a time when I was really like discovering my own voice in comedy. But when I was at SNL, the, the people who dominated SNL in the time I was there were both from a writing performing perspective were Adam McKay, who'd probably be on that Mount Rushmore for me, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. So... 
one version of my Mount Rushmore is those four. It's Conan, Adam, Tina, and Amy. Like I, and Maya got there just as I was leaving, but Maya was um, sort of, there are very few people who get to SNL and instantly kind of take over the joint. Like it usually takes, like it did with me, it takes a year to even figure out how to do it. There are some people who show up and they just seem like they're running the place right away. Maya, Tina, and Amy were all that person. Like the, from the second Maya showed up, it was like, oh my God. It was like a, it was like everybody wanted to write everything for her because of how talented she was. So my personal Mount Rushmore in my career, I guess, would be people like that. In my life, it's more people like Letterman who were, when I was first like learning about comedy. I mean, one of the hardest things for me, not to get, not to derail this conversation, but like the first person who ever really meant anything to me comedically was Woody Allen. So I've had to go through this long personal reckoning as he's, you know, all these revelations have come out about him that are less than pleasant to try to figure out how that, how that fits into my own self view. But like guys like David Letterman and, um, and then like, you know, Monty Python and Will Ferrell has got to be, I mean, my Mount Rushmore is probably going to have, hundred people on it, but it's a, that, it's that crew that when I think about like people who just blew my mind, who I actually have worked with, you know, it start it starts with Maya, Tina, Amy, Adam, and, and Will. And then there's, there's, you know, people as I've gone through like Steve, working, writing jokes for Steve Carell is like a, was a dream. I don't know. It, it, Amy Poehler is definitely on it because having worked with her on Parks and Rec for seven years, like seeing what she does, every day she's a she's kind of a a singular person in my mind where does Chappelle fit into everything we're talking about there because oh we're at that part of south beach sessions now well that list was awfully (laughs) caucasian that list uh, i was wondering where it is that Chappelle fit because if i recall i may have this wrong uh but the office right because this was sort of pre-diversity. Do I have this wrong? That the office was pretty damn white and Stanley was in one of the corners not being white. But of course, you're going to be influenced by your surroundings no matter how much you learn later in life. You guys were coming up in all or largely white male writing rooms, were you not? Like that's how that's how all the people on that list become end up being, being white people or or some women, but fewer women, just white dudes. Yeah, a lot of white dudes. I mean, it, from the time I started working in TV writers rooms until now, the change has been incredible. Like uh, just in terms of gender diversity, uh, racial diversity, every kind of diversity, LGBTQ diversity. So now it, it's a it's a very, very, very different world from when I started for the better. There is no, there's no drop in quality. All of the kind of nonsense fears that um, were exhibited at, with the idea of multiculturalism or diversity, like they've all been shattered uh, in a great way. And the office was largely white, although, you know, Mindy was the first person Greg hired, or maybe the second person, Mindy Kaling was the one of the first people he hired. And he immediately just put her into the show and she essentially played like an absurdist version of herself. And that was really inspiring because it was, she is a very singular person. There's no one I've ever met who's like her. She's a South Asian woman who has a lot of very odd views in the world and is extremely smart. She went to Dartmouth, but also extremely bubbly in a way that that her character on the show sort of was mostly that side of her. And she just was like, we were, Greg's thing was like, just let her be her and it'll work. And he was totally right. And she became one of the most popular characters on the show. So like that was the moment, that was 2005-ish. And that was like a real inflection point, I think. Like right around then, a South Asian woman as complicated and interesting as Mindy Kaling could be on a network TV show and it could work really well and become really popular. And that started this sort of flood of sea change where you don't have casts where everybody's white and then there's one person way in the corner. The office didn't get all the way there, obviously, but like every show that I've worked on since then and every show that's become popular since then has been more interesting and varied and diverse in its representation than every show that came before it. So that's a huge, that's a huge change. I mean, that, that is an enormous change in TV from, you know, in, in not that long a time. That's only 16 years ago and everything is different now than it was before. It, it was exactly the same every year until about 2005 and then everything changed. And that's been really nice. And so was it a blind spot? Was it simply something that you guys didn't notice until she walks into the room and takes over scenes by just being herself? 
Yeah, I don't know if it was a blind spot. I mean, it, I, I mean, all of Hollywood had a, had that blind spot forever, obviously. And and it and to, actually, to call it a blind spot is probably letting Hollywood off the hook. It'd be like it, it wasn't it was intentional. It wasn't like we oh we don't know that there are funny people of color out in the world. It was let's try as hard as we can to keep them from achieving any power or authority. But with Mindy, like Mindy is just a very very funny and interesting person, and so in the writer's room, she's being funny and interesting all the time. And she was a performer. She'd been in an off-Broadway play that she wrote called Matt and Ben that was about Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, where she played, I think she played Matt Damon and her friend who was another woman played Ben <laughs> Affleck. And it was this huge success. It's where Greg saw her. And so he always had it in his head, like she's going to be on the show. Same with BJ Novak. It was like, he BJ was a stand-up and he hired him to be on the show. He liked that idea of like writer-performers. So when Mindy is being funny all the time and and being impressively like confident all the time, like there, why wouldn't you put her on the show? That was Greg's sort of theory, and it was the right theory. Like she's you know she's so she was so funny on the show and so great, and it was just a sort of revelation that the point of the her character didn't have to be that she was Indian. The point of her character was that she was funny, and that's what actual equality looks like to me. Is where the point of, you know, it's a it's a theory we basically took with Aziz Ansari on Parks and Rec. It was like, we're going to build a character for him where the point of his character is not that he is South Asian. The point of his character is something entirely different from that. And that is a part of him, but it's not all of him. And that's the difference between actual, I think, good representation and bad representation is like, are you there just because you are the thing that you are or the kind of person you are or the ethnicity you are or are you a human being with three dimensions and then also one of them is that you are this other thing so to me that was the that's the that's the single biggest change in hollywood i think in 20 years what an amazing thing to learn in real time though like you didn't know you were learning it right like that is an no. ama- that is an amazing way to be awakened in terms of wherever it is that you arrived in adulthood with your politics because you are a screed machine on Twitter over the last four years. You're a nice and decent man who is more in line with Tim Kirchin, I think, Mike Ryan, than anyone we have in our universe in terms of just being fundamentally decent as a human being and a dorked out baseball person. And yet when it comes to the screed of what is happening in America right now, Ken Tremendous, formerly of FireJoeMorgan.com, a decent, sweet person. It's like seeing... Tim Kirchin go on a murderous, <laughs> screaming rage filled with like all sorts of slurs. It just doesn't make any sense. Mike Schur, kind, gentle man, the way he spits poison on what America's been over the last four years. Honored to have him aboard. What are you doing? Me? Yeah, like you're bored. I don't know what that means. What are you doing? I don't know, man. You asked me to do this and I said yes because I like you. And, you know, long term, I think... I'm going to ghostwrite a book for Stu Gatz and see what happens. <laughs> there it is. This career comes full circle. Mike Schur is aboard the pirate ship. Mike Schur of Parks and Rec, The Office, The Good Place, of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. What else? You got something else coming up here, too, with that Ed Helm who hates us. That Ed Helms. That <laughs> You're Ed, doing that, the old person thing where you swallow yeah, the S. I swallow the S. Well, I don't, he doesn't deserve a little Stugatz and everyone. He doesn't deserve for me to say his name right after calling us Zippy and the Juice because we're a hijinx well, morning show. You were, you were asking him to do what? Tell people what you were asking him this to do. This is not the context that anyone needs. We you had, brought it up. All right. You, you were asking him what? Yeah, whether or not he stands or sits when he wipes is what yeah. we were so, asking. So forgive him if he... Forgive him if he... Mike, it's a good question. It's a good question. Takes you down a peg. It was Hannah Ferris that called you Zippy and the Juice. Mike, it's a good question. Mike, are you a standing wiper or are you a sitting wiper? I will answer that question by uh, formally resigning from my position (laughs) at Meadowlark Media. (laughs) 